This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And you can find it on page 779 or 779 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, New City. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Usually I'm over there playing something or other. And this morning we come to goodness in our series called Cultivating the Fruit of the Spirit. I believe Josh noted that it's fruit singular, not fruits plural. That is, goodness is not one of nine fruits of the Spirit, but a part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is all of these. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So goodness. Now the question of what it means to be good comes up at least once a year when it really matters, particularly if you're a kid. He knows if you've been bad or good. It'll be good for goodness sake. All right, that's right after the creepy part about he sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. All right, I'm talking about that stalker, Santa Claus, and how what it means to be good gets really real right about the time that the Halloween candy stops being enough. So let me quote Calvin here. Uh, that Calvin. It says, and Santa, if I get any lords a-leaping, any geese a-laying, you've had it. He says, hmm, that might not be politic. But the conversation continues. He says, I'm getting nervous about Christmas. Hob says, you're worried you haven't been good? And he says, that's just the question. It's all relative. What's Santa's definition? How good do you have to be to qualify as good? He says, I haven't killed anybody. See, that's good, right? I haven't committed any felonies. I didn't start any wars. I don't practice cannibalism. Wouldn't you say that's pretty good? Wouldn't you say I should get lots of presents? And Hobb answers, but maybe good is more than the absence of bad. And Calvin says, see, that's what worries me. He says, okay, assuming I can get an overnight letter to the North Pole, what would you charge me to write a glowing character reference? Hobb says, I'm not going to perjure myself for you. My record is clean. So how good do you have to be to qualify as good, Calvin asks, how good is good enough? What is goodness anyway? A rich young man approached Jesus, asked a similar question. He called him good teacher, to which Jesus responded, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is being somewhat ironic here, right? Since he was and is God, but his point is that indeed no one is good but God. God is the standard, as Hobbes speculated. Maybe good means something more than the absence of bad, and indeed it does. That's what worries Calvin. And if we're honest, it ought to give us pause as well. How good do you have to be to qualify as good? Well, it's perfect. It's perfect 
as God is perfect, beyond what any of us humans have ever had the capacity to do. For instance, let's read through Psalm 15 and take a little inventory. Um, This is a, a treatise on what it means to be good. You can turn there in your Bible if you've got it handy. So this is Psalm 15. The psalmist writes, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? To sojourn in God's tent or dwell on his holy hill were metaphors for being close to God, or as we might say, being in a relationship with God. To be in a relationship with God, you must be good. And the psalmist lays out what that life looks like. So who can be close to God? Verse 2 and following says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, and takes up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out money at interest, does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So how do we stack up here, taking a little assessment of ourselves, right? Are you blameless? Do you do what is right and just? Speak truth in your heart. Don't slander ever. Don't do anything mean to any of your neighbors. Don't criticize or disapprove of friends. You always know the correct right from wrong. Always honor other Christians. Do you do what's right no matter the consequences, even when it hurts? Do you have complete integrity, always the same in every situation? Never exploit others financially or do anything shady with money. Don't ever take a bribe. He who does these things, the psalmist writes, shall never be moved. To answer Calvin's question, how good do you have to be to qualify as good? Well, keeping the stuff in Psalm uh, Psalm 15 perfectly is a start. So how do we stack up? You feel pretty good? Feel confident? Likely not. I certainly don't. This is why C.S. Lewis said we don't need niceness, although to be nice and polite is good and it's fine. We don't need to be made nice. We need to be made new. Mere improvement, he says, is not redemption. So what is goodness? What does it look like in the lives of God's people? Micah answers that for us. He says, I have told you what is good. And we'll get to that in a minute. But Micah actually begins with a bigger question. He says, how do we get close to God? Like the psalmist of Psalm 15 That's Micah's question. How can we approach God? What can we do to get into a relationship with God? Micah gives us two wrong answers and then tells us what goodness is. In Micah's phraseology, verse 6, he says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And we have to acknowledge a bit of a cultural gap here. Ancient cultures, and there are some cultures even today, that just assume an almighty transcendent, powerful deity that is out there that needs to be placated. We, as a U.S. American culture, we tend to be spiritual, if not religious, and we assume that we're good enough, we're smart enough, and gosh darn it, God owes us. We're chummy with God, and we tend to feel that he owes us life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We've lost most of what we might call a holiness gap. But then there are some times when we get a sense of that other view of a big and a mighty and a transcendent God. Maybe if we stand on the shore of the ocean or stand on a mountaintop or look up at the night sky and see the stars, we get a sense of how small we are and how big and almighty God is. When we experience the bigness of God, we get a sense that he's not our pal or our life coach or our yes man. We might get a glimpse of the gap between us and God. Or we read scripture like 
Psalm 15, and we realize that we fall way short. So Micah asks, what, what shall I come before the Lord? Well, first he speculates, how about burnt offerings? With calves a year old, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Now, Micah is alluding to the sacrificial system that we read about in the Hebrew scriptures. Sacrifices were made, offerings for sin. A year old calf, a valuable offering at the time. How about a thousand rams? How about 10,000 rivers of oil? Is extraordinary generosity enough? Nope. We cannot be generous enough. God cannot be bought. Well, then the second thing, what about some unthinkable sacrifice to make atonement? What about the sacrifice of a firstborn child? We probably know what it's like to want to make up for something that we've done wrong. We feel like we've screwed up beyond repair. And then we're willing to do anything to make it go away. So Micah suggests willfully entering into the most significant pain and giving the most severe, heartbreaking sacrifice we could imagine, the offering of a firstborn child. Would that be enough to make it right so that we could stand before God? Nope, not even the unthinkable sacrifice of our own kid. Sin against an infinite God means an infinite debt. Micah says neither extraordinary generosity nor atonement through extreme sacrifice is good enough. Interestingly, this section, second option that Micah notes here, this sacrifice of a child, actually happens twice in the Bible. Once at the beginning in the book of Genesis and then again in the Gospels. In Genesis chapter 22, God calls Abraham to sacrifice his only son Isaac, a longed after, long time in coming son of his old age. Abraham walks Isaac up the mountain, ready to sacrifice him, but believing the whole time that there would be a way out, that God would raise Isaac from the dead afterwards or something. And just at the last moment, with Isaac tied up and the knife drawn and raised above, God tells Abraham to stop. Because God says, I now know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. For me, Isaac was spared. And then in the Gospels, we see this same thing. God the Father giving his only son, his only son whom he loves, this time going through with it, giving his only son over to death on the cross so that those who believe in him might live and indeed approach Almighty God boldly and without fear. Micah says you can't give your own firstborn as atonement for you, let alone anyone else. But we know that there is a son who can be given and has been given, Jesus Christ, God's son, our Savior. At this point, you might be thinking, man, the sermon is supposed to be about the fruit of the Spirit and goodness. What are we even talking about? Well, we're getting there. That's verse 8. What does goodness look like? He has told you, O man, what is good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. That's where we're going. We're going to look at those three elements that God has told us is goodness. But before we do, I want us to be unbelievably clear. We are not saved by our goodness. That was the whole point of that long preamble about verses six and seven and about our atonement in Jesus. We are not saved by our goodness. And this is important to make extremely clear because if you're anything like me, you'll say, Grace, yeah, yada, 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 hold my beer. I'm gonna walk around trying to make my keep in the kingdom. Right? I can slip into self-righteousness and thinking that I'll get on God's team by good behavior so fast, I don't even realize that it's happened. So I'm saying this as much for my sake as for all of ours, we are not made right with God by being good. 
Being good is a good thing, but it's not a saving thing. Another way of saying this is we are not saved by good works, but for good works. We're not saved by goodness, but for goodness. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians. Look at this. This is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Then he continues, though, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see it there? Our salvation is not a result of our goodness, not a result of our works. However, Paul says we are God's workmanship, God's masterpieces created for good works. So that we're clear, say this with me. I know this might be a little weird because we're all just used to sitting there silently for 25 minutes, but say this with me. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by good works. It's even underlined, so you know to say it, okay? Say it with me. I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by good works. That, we can just leave it right there. Remember that as we go from here. So let's spend a little time that we have left looking at a bit of what God says is good. Micah straight up clearly said, God has told us what is good is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. First, do justice. This idea of justice is all around us these days, we read in the news about the Department of Justice and things going on there. We hear folks chanting, no justice, no peace. That's N-O justice, N-O peace, or K-N-O-W justice, K-N-O-W peace. If you're around my age, you might remember uh, the Hall of Justice from the awesome cartoon Super Friends that I watched all the time when I was a kid. Interest, incidentally, the Hall of Justice was modeled after Union Terminal. There's a bit of trivia there. Hall of Justice. The idea of and the desire for justice is in the air right now, isn't it? We probably think of justice primarily in terms of retribution, wrong things being punished and hopefully made right. That is, someone does something illegal or atrocious and they are brought to justice. And for sure, that's part of what the prophet Micah is getting at here. God cares about that kind of justice, and so should we. There's another sense that maybe is a little less obvious to us in how we think about justice. The word in Hebrew for justice here is mishpat. It concerns giving everyone what they deserve, and it specifically involves care for the vulnerable, the most vulnerable people at the time that Micah was writing, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. Yes, justice is those who do evil getting what they deserve, but there's a, I guess you could call it, uh, like a positive justice, putting things right, where those who are most vulnerable are getting the care that they deserve. It's another Hebrew term, shalom, that you've probably heard that expresses this idea of wholeness. Things are as they should be, peace. We've probably all heard the seminal quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And that's the idea, a world where there is no brokenness or injustice, where marriages are whole, where there's no racism, no abortion, no substance abuse, no mental illness, no gun violence, no kids going hungry, no sex trafficking, no sexual assault or abuse, no orphans. You get the idea, right? What we're talking about and what we long for is the kingdom of God, the way that things should be. To do justice is to work for that. Pray for it, yes, but also work for it. We're invited into this doing justice. That's goodness. 
do stuff to make the reality of the kingdom of God where justice reigns manifest here and now. God's kingdom coming here on earth as it is in heaven as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. One commentary said, biblical justice creates the perfect human society. One part of this doing justice is doing what's right no matter what. Right? Doing what's right, even if it's difficult, even if it costs you. That's where it gets real. It's where the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 15. Verse 4, he says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, he said, who keeps their promises even when it hurts. We can talk about justice here in the safety of the sanctuary, but what about when it counts, when it costs? What then? I read a story this week of a pastor in our little family of churches who had been at a church in Houston, Texas a number of years ago. Texas is, you know, down southwest next to Mexico. It's ground zero for the immigration debate. Well, this pastor was working at a church in a poor Hispanic neighborhood, and he got called to pick up a friend near the border. So after he picked up his friend from his neighborhood, he was subsequently arrested for aiding and abetting. He was arrested as a trafficker, and he spent New Year's Eve in jail. And here's what he said. He said, as you can imagine, when I came back to the neighborhood, I had good status. The church filled up. The article continues. It says, through his experience in Texas, he began to consider the weight of various ethical choices. He met many people who had endured worse than subsistence living in Mexico. They risked their lives to walk across the desert to get to Houston. They worked jobs for below minimum wage to send money back to Mexico. He says, these were the most noble people I had ever met. Did they break the laws? Yes but no one in their family died. He continues, he said, immigrants are essential to the day-to-day activities of life. They do yard work, take care of children and the elderly, clean pools and houses. They harvest, prepare, and serve our food. In fact, more than 50% of our food supply is touched at some point by the hands of immigrants, some lawful, some not. Many of us are willing to be served by immigrants, but we don't often empathize with their struggle. When we're reading a magazine during our pedicure, are we aware that the young woman washing our feet has been separated from her parents for years because there's no legal way to bring them to this country? When we avert our eyes from day laborers standing outside Home Depot, do we consider that their day's work might feed their family in Mexico for a week? Now, before you start firing off any angry emails, I'm not making any comments about how to solve illegal immigration or whatever. I'm just saying to do justice means to at least care about immigrants as one of the most vulnerable classes of folks, along with widows, and orphans, and the poor, and children, and anyone else who's vulnerable. And James reiterates this in the New Testament where he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is, to, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's a high calling to do justice. To do justice, and also to love mercy. Some translations say love mercy, some say love kindness. And the word here is a biggie, uh, and it's translated a variety of ways. Some have said it's the most important word in the Hebrew scripture. It's the word hesed. It's translated in all sorts of ways. Love, steadfast love, kindness, loving kindness, mercy, merciful love, faithfulness, goodness. Notice at least a couple of the fruit of the spirit in there. My favorite definition of hesed, and I say this all the time up here, is the way Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the Jesus Storybook Bible She says it's the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Paul Miller calls it love without an exit strategy. So we're told to love mercy or to love kindness, to love hesed. But it's not our kindness that we love. 
We're to love God's kindness. Author and musician Michael Card wrote a whole book about this word hesed. It's called Inexpressible. And he says this. He says, we can do justly only by loving hesed. The doing must flow from the loving. And the loving is a response, as love is always a response, to the God of Exodus 34, who is full of hesed and at the same time does not leave the guilty unpunished. We can only do justice by loving mercy. We talk about, meditate, tell our kids, revel in God's love, his mercy, his kindness. We steep ourselves in it. We bathe in it. Back in Deuteronomy 6, God's people were instructed to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your might. And he continues, in these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house And when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Basically everywhere, all the time. When we love something, we surround ourselves with it. Like a Swifty listening to Taylor Swift songs on repeat, plastering posters on their walls, following the news from the Eras Tour on Instagram, right? Getting all the T-Swift content when they sit in their house or walk by the way and they lie down. They're like, okay, give me a break about the Taylor Swift reference. I've got three teen girls in my house. This is my world, okay? But when we love something, we surround ourselves with it, right? And I imagine this is, Jesus was engaged in this task of surrounding his followers with reminders of the love of God by telling stories about the world around him, making everything point to the kingdom. Birds, fish, bread, wheat, stones, coins, treasures, seeds, children, Wine, judges, banquets, sheep, goats, trees. Jesus was enchanting a world where his followers couldn't turn around without seeing something that reminded them of him. The only way that we can do justice, loving our neighbor, is by steeping ourselves and constantly reminding ourselves of God's steadfast love, his kindness, his mercy, his love without an exit strategy. Which kind of leads to our last bit. And that's walk humbly with God. Micah says, God has told us what is good, what to do and how to do it. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. Walk with God and do so humbly. And describing our relationship with God as a walk might feel kind of trite or cheesy if you've been around the church for a while, but there may not be a better image. And it's, it's pretty much been around forever. From the beginning of the Bible, we read of God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And we hear of Adam and Eve hiding, not walking in the garden with God. Not walking with God, but hiding is the immediate consequence of our first parents' disobedience. We're promised a day when God will walk with us and we with him. Faithfulness is described as walking in God's ways. Paul talks about walking with God repeatedly in Ephesians. Jesus literally walked all over with his disciples. They were called his followers because he was on foot and they'd walk around after him. There's an early 20th century hymn called In the Garden. There's actually a really fun, simple version by Johnny Cash. Also versions by Elvis Presley, Al Green, Willie Nelson, George Jones, Josh Garrels, and like a thousand others. But it goes like this. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And the refrain says, and he walks with me and he talks with me. And he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. 
There's two more verses. Is it schmaltzy and saccharine, a little cheesy? Sure. But it's earnest and with some truth in there, right? Walking humbly with God. So how do we walk with God? What does that look like? And I would say it essentially looks like practicing what are often called the ordinary means of grace. You've probably heard us talk about this. There's the stuff that we do, some practices, to set us up to experience God's grace. To walk with God is to do stuff like read and discuss scripture. It's why we print our readings and prayers in the bulletins every week. You can sign up to get them via text. Means of grace means to pray, to meet regularly with other Christians for encouragement and accountability, to worship with God's people, singing, listening, to preaching. You're doing it right now. Participating in the sacraments, being baptized if you haven't already, baptizing your kids, coming to take communion, which we do here every week. Talking about your faith with the folks in your life, neighbors, coworkers, housemates. These are some of the ordinary means of grace. They're not ordinary in the sense of plain or humdrum things, but ordinary in the sense that they are ordained and they're available. That is, these practices are available to us that we can avail ourselves of. Less specifically, to know what a walk with God looks like, work the metaphor, right? Imagine taking a walk with a friend or a loved one. What's that like? You're together. You're with someone you enjoy. Remember back during COVID tide when taking a walk outside was something we could actually do to meet together and see each other? When you're walking, you're moving, you're heading somewhere. Maybe you have a destination. Maybe you're just exploring Maybe you're just enjoying the journey, but you're on the move when you're walking. You're moving, but you're also not racing. You're not hurried. It's not a competition. You're moving at a sustainable, joy-filled, doable pace. Maybe you're talking. You're enjoying each other's company. Or maybe you're quiet, enjoying each other's company in silence. You're probably enjoying your surroundings on a walk. Nature, if you're in a green space. You're enjoying the people and the wonder of the urban world if you're in a city or a neighborhood. And we could probably work this metaphor all day, extrapolate it out, use your imagination. What does a walk with a friend or loved one look like? How does that walk manifest itself in your relationship with God? How could you get more of that kind of actual walk into your walk with God? One last thing and then we'll wrap it up. Goodness looks like a walk with God that is humble. That's the adjective describing how we walk with God. Walk humbly with God. I'm not going to belabor this because we just kind of talked about it in our Seven Deadly Sins series when we talked about pride. But probably one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is this treatment of humility and conversely pride in Luke 18. Jesus tells this story. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And so here you've got two guys, both apparently trying to get right with God. The religious one, the Pharisee, prays prayers of thanks that he's good enough, smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like him. 
He makes sure to remind God that he avoids notorious sins, that he fasts, and he gives generously. And then there's the tax collector, a known conspirator with the occupiers. He's not doing justice, right? In fact, he is unjust. He's failing the Psalm 15 test big time. He's extortioner, standing back, afraid to approach or even look up. He's so ashamed. He cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So who's the good one in this scenario, right? The stunner is that the tax collector is the one who is justified, the one who is made right with God, the one who is in relationship with God. It's not the religious guy who looks like he's doing all the right stuff. The key seems to be humility, right? They're both trying to walk with God. One is walking along trying to prove himself. The other is walking humbly, loving and relying on God's mercy and his failure. You know, it's a bit paradoxical, but the more we know God, the more we come to know how merciful and kind and loving he is, the humbler we ought to become. The more we know God, the longer and further we walk with him, the more humility ought to be bred into our lives because we'll continue to grow in knowledge of how great he is and therefore how far short we fall. You know, not that we should be sinning more. And ideally, as the spirit works his fruit into our lives, we will sin way less as time goes by. We won't sin more, but we'll become more acutely aware of the sin that remains. And it will grieve us all the more, causing us to turn humbly to God like the tax collector, crying out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then running into the arms of the Father, reaching up to take his hand as we continue to walk further up and farther in. All right, so what's the point of goodness? Well, we might say that the point is so that the kingdom is shown to be beautiful and believable. It's a bit like a model home. We use that analogy around here a lot. You know what a model home is, right? Say that there's a subdivision. Right near the entrance, there'll be a, a home or two that was built first, and it's staged like someone's living there, and it's set up so that any prospective buyers can walk through and get a sense of what it might be like to live there. Or think of walking through Ikea, right? All those model rooms set up so you can get a sense of how all their stuff looks like and feels and works together. Our church and our lives are to be a model home, demonstrating the beauty of the gospel and making it plausible, believable for those who see us. Jesus said it this way in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your good deeds, your goodness, shine before those around you so that they might see your goodness and give praise to your Father in heaven. Glory be to God. Now, friends, we can only do this through the Spirit. It's the Spirit's fruit, the Spirit's work. Hopefully you've gotten one of these cards that are strewn around the sanctuary. The goal of these is twofold, right? On one side, it's got the verse with the fruit of the Spirit on it, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, so that you can memorize it. Now, maybe you're a pro at memorizing Scripture. Maybe you've never even tried it or given a thought about it. Well, here's your chance to give it a try. So memorize this verse with the fruit of the Spirit in it. And then the second goal of this little card is to invite you to be praying the prayer on the other side. It's a prayer that John Stott was said to have prayed every day. It ought to remind us that this is the Spirit's work, all of it, and goodness included. So let's do this. Let's pray that prayer together as we prepare to come to the table. If you've got the card, you can read it off of the card, or it's, uh, otherwise it's up on the screen. So let's pray this together as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper this morning. For Heavenly Father... I pray that this day I may live in your presence 
and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.